Hello. Hi. What would you like to have a conversation about? I'd like to have a conversation about Ex Machina. Except this week it's just a monologue. Hello. I am Professor Robert D.G. Black, and this is Minutia Ex Machina. I have no guests this week. Because there were things to talk about. And I'm creating a sort of, uh, beast. <laughs> a podcast beast. This week's episodes of these shows, Minute 6 of Minutia Ex Machina, Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute, are tying directly into three other podcasts. My $1 Reviews, Twin Peaks Radio, and Trash Film, all of which are behind my Patreon wall. Well, Twin Peaks Radio sometimes isn't. So hey, go support me on Patreon. For like a dollar a month, you're going to get extra shows. Patreon.com slash drops. I also need to, this week, talk about a YouTube video. See, I used to do YouTube movie reviews. My channel was called After the Film, and I did, among other things, a scene breakdown, starting in this minute of Ex Machina. Anyway, what you should know, I grew up watching way too many movies. I've seen close to 7,000, as of checking today, on my letterboxd. Maybe it's over 7,000 and there's several missing. I don't know, but I used to watch a film a day for several years. This year I kind of backed off that a little. My After the Film YouTube channel included, this is from June to September 2016 is how long it lasted, 31 reviews covering 36 different new films from 2016, two flashback reviews of older films, video covering my top five slasher films, which I still want to clean up the audio on that video and put it on my regular channel, because my audio on my reviews was pretty bad. And then also one scene breakdown from Ex Machina. I had planned to do other scene breakdowns, other top fives, other flashback reviews, as well as at least, I think I was trying to do five reviews every two weeks, essentially. It was just over two videos a week. I should have aimed for a video a week, and then I probably could have kept it up better and done a better job of it. The problem was I kind of was getting better at editing at the same time as getting frustrated with the lack of growing an audience. And meanwhile, I'm already doing my blog and finishing up grad school, and it just got to a point where I had to either stop or make something of it. I mean, the most views I ever had on a single video at the time was about 200, so it wasn't ever big. My subscribers were other people who were trying to make movie review channels. And I subscribed to them, and we commented on each other's videos, and it was the whole thing. Like when I was blogging. At first, the only audience I had was other bloggers. That audience got a little bigger, and nowadays there are many who have read some of the entries, at least, because a lot of Movies by Minutes people look at my entries when they talked about their film, if they're covering something I wrote about there. And I repost a lot of things on Facebook and on Twitter, and reference it a lot. It's one of my sort of credentials, as it were, that I spent tens of thousands, I forget the exact word count. I have an exact word count for the first year somewhere, because I also wrote my grad thesis about it, but I will talk about that more on tomorrow's episode of Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute. So anyway, the YouTube channel lasted from June to September, just four months. I was into it, but it was also, I have a tendency to over-edit even podcasts, I've been like that. If you listen to Annihilation Minute, you'll know. I over-edit a lot. I add clips. I add sound bites. 
They had music. I had other things. I'm trying to cut down on that to save time, save effort, and make it more about writing. And even I'm trying to write less. This episode of this show is mostly written word for word. Most of them aren't because I plan to have guests and I don't want to overwrite it. I don't want it to be more of the blog just out loud. I could do that. And maybe when I figure out the exact format for an ongoing show, maybe I will do that. But for now, I want to try new things. So I've been thinking about what I want from these shows this week. What I want from podcasting. The Movies by Minutes format is great for me because I love to obsess over the minutia of film. But it is also limiting. I will talk more in Thursday's episode of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute about the failure of my show Cock and Bull Movie Talk, a.k.a. Cock and Bull Minute. But that was one attempt to expand the scope to more than just one film at a time. Except if my Groundhog Day Project blog proved anything, it is that talking about one film can include talking about many films. All of cinema, really. Or other mediums as well. And focusing in on one film can be one and the same as focusing on all of them. And vice versa. And it's how my brain works a lot of the time. Like, last week on this very show, I talked about how the musical cue here, which I've only recently learned was a Schubert piece and not something composed for the scene, reminded me of the Jurassic Park theme. And this entrance into Nathan's compound fit with that reminding. Caleb is entering the secret park, or descending into the netherworld, or whatever literary metaphor seems more apt. He is venturing into a secret space where secret knowledge resides. And what he learns there and what he chooses to do there can make or break him, make or break the world around him. When you take moments like this out of the context of the specific film around them, they become something else, something bigger. And you have to be careful of them becoming unwieldy or getting lost in the shuffle of trying to discuss them. More on that later, probably. First, and even before I get to the scene breakdown clip, I offer up another thing of mine. By the time you're listening to this episode, this $1 review of Tick Tick Boom will have been posted on my Patreon, patreon.com slash lemmingdrops, months ago. But it connects to this week of this trilogy of shows. So, here is that. Due to adult content, parental discretion is advised. To begin. Are you watching closely? To begin. I just, I'm bored. How to start. What plaything can you offer me today? In Life Itself, a memoir, Roger Ebert begins. I was born inside the movie of my life. I was born a poor black child. The visuals were before me. I was born in it. The audio surrounded me. Molded by it. The plot unfolded inevitably, but not necessarily. I don't remember how I got into the movie, but it continues to entertain me. At first, the frames flicker without connection. We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. It lets you understand a little bit more about different hopes, aspirations, dreams, and fears. It helps us to identify with the people who are sharing this journey with us. Here's the deal. Just give me the facts. Just the facts. Only the facts. Breathe. Focus. Keep it simple. No, 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 no doubt, no doubt. Okay. You know who I am. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black. This is my $1 review, ostensibly, of Tick, Tick, Boom. 
This is available to my Patreon supporters, of course, for now, but will also be included probably in its entirety in an episode of Minutia Ex Machina sometime in at least February. It is December 6th as I record this. I'm putting together a thing that connects six different podcasts, three of which will be this week, three of which will be in February, and links back to a YouTube video from half a decade ago, my blog, my life, everything. Because there was a combination thing that happened. This was last night. I watched Tick Tick Boom, and then shortly thereafter I watched an episode of Wheel of Time. I never read those books, so I'm just coming to them like just a TV viewer watching the show, but still seeing a complexity of the mythology of the show and the lore and everything else. This isn't a review of Wheel of Time, but it is important that that connects. Tick, tick, boom. First, a sort of review, and then I'll tell you what it did in my head as I was watching. Tick, tick, boom is wonderful. I loved it. It's not for everyone. Even if you like musicals, you might not appreciate it because it is a dramatization of the week before a workshop that Jonathan Larson famously wrote Rent. He had a workshop for a musical that never got made called Superbia. But the process of that week of leading up to the workshop then became Tick, Tick, Boom, which never got made into a stage production itself until well after he was dead and after Rent was a thing already, and now has been turned into a film directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, rather well, I'd say, to tell this sort of self-aware story from the present about Jonathan Larson's rise to fame and then the tragedy of the fact that even though we don't see that part of the story because it's later, it is mentioned in the voiceover, his death on the eve of the first public performance of Rent. Really what it is is the reason Lin-Manuel Miranda made it is because this story was the thing that kept him going as a writer. And it's this idea that you finish one thing and maybe there's no audience for it, but do you give up and do something else or do you write another thing? Do you paint another thing? Do you draw another thing? Do you sing another thing? What is it that the artist does when the art isn't getting them a life, as it were? No, that's, that's not even a good way to say it, because they have a life. The phrasing's weird. You don't understand if you understand. And I imagine anyone who is listening to this sometime soon after it comes out, you are following my Patreon, you know me, you're probably a fellow podcaster who is in the same boat, in a way. Like, where did you come from? What did you do before you did a podcast? I grew up watching movies. I grew up writing stories. Any of the stories I have left from when I was in elementary are awful. I read part of one on my Cock and Bull podcast to make a point. Or no, that was on Andy Sucks. Is that where that was? <laughs> I've done so many shows now because the, the way my brain jumps from piece to piece to piece. I don't think I could ever spend eight years... No. On the one hand, I could never spend eight years working on a single musical for a workshop, like at least the fictional version of Jonathan Larson does in this film. He has spent eight years working on this thing, Superbia. Except, on the other hand, I could, in a sense, because I still have stories that I wrote 
20, 25 years ago even, that are still in my head in a way that I want to go back and try to like improve them again. And I don't have time to improve the old things because I have new things. So they just sit there, some piece of my brain still, you know, raising their head every once in a while and telling me, yeah, come back to this, work on this. And I have new things. There are always new things and the old things are always still there too, which is part of the problem. Or maybe it's not a problem. The acting, the singing, and everything are great here, by the way. I mean, more of the review. But this isn't a review as such. And that isn't necessarily the point of a review, even. One of my students quoted uh, Maya Angelou in their speech. Actually, I think I pointed out to them it wasn't her that originally said it. (sighs) I shouldn't cite her either, then. But the, the line was nice. It was like, people might not remember what you say or how you said it, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think a good review, this is why I liked Roger Ebert a lot, even when I disagreed with him, is he gave you a context for his story. He let you know why he thought the things he thought, and why a movie like this about a creator struggling to put out a product is the kind of thing that feels like something important to me, personally. And there are a lot of them. Something like Brigsby Bear, Dave Minimay's Obscure Things You Probably Haven't Heard Of. Actually, if you're one of my fellow podcaster friends, you've probably heard of Dave Made a Maze because we did a podcast about it called Dave Made a Minute. Go listen to it. It's great. And many others. Some movies about writers don't deal with writing very well, like uh, Finding Forrester, I thought, dealt horribly with the process. But some deal with it well. And Tick, Tick, Boom deals with it well. It shows how the personal life influences the story that isn't about the personal life. But then Tick, Tick, Boom is about that personal life. Like, his next product was something that was more personal. But Superbia wasn't, but it also was. Because it was influenced by the things he was doing in his regular life. And everything we do should be. And ultimately is whether we want it to be or not. And as I'm watching the film, I'm thinking about... I won't list them off here, but I have another podcast before. The various novels I've written that haven't been published. The many short stories I've written that haven't been published. And the piece of this, I was going to say this week of content, but it's not this week of content, it's this week for me. But half of its contents won't be available for a few months. So in one of those other parts, I will talk about a YouTube video I made five years ago, and I had a YouTube thing that I did where I reviewed movies for a little while. And I got frustrated with the format and not being able to grow the channel and turn it into an actual thing. And I've gotten frustrated by the podcast format and not being able to grow my listenership. And in a way, the movies-by-minute format that I tend to do is limiting in that regard because it puts me in this focus on a specific piece of content for a set amount of weeks or months, and then it's over. It's not an ongoing podcast that can keep growing and keep growing and can gain an audience. And I feel like I need one of those, but on the other hand, I don't feel like I could do one of those because then what's the draw? Is it just me? On YouTube, I could probably grow it now, because my YouTube channel at this point, my main one, has a much bigger subscriber base, I guess you'd call it, than I ever had when I was reviewing films. But I don't put content with me on there very much. I put mashups of other things, because my brain is full of mashups of other things. Like in Tick, Tick, Boom. Jonathan 
sees posters on the wall and pulls out a little notebook out of his pocket and writes, scribbles down an idea. I've had that notebook. Many of them. Three by five carts full of ideas that I've tucked away in a box. Many of those ideas are awful. Some of them found their way into other things. Some of them are still stuck in my head even though I wrote them down because they were something sticky enough, maybe good enough, to pull back out and use again. And I think there's been this urge on my part for a long time, since I was a kid really, where I wanted to make a living doing some creative thing. But I also, and I've done more detail on this, in Dave Made a Minute, for example, I talked about this. I grew up in a religious cult that had me, or was constantly telling me, essentially, that there wasn't a future. You know, tail end of the Cold War, and I have church and school telling me I'm not going to be an adult. The world's going to end, Jesus is going to come back. It's going to be great, except that's not great for a little kid. Meanwhile, I'm watching movies where there's more life going on than I expect to have in my own. I mean, it's no wonder that I fastened onto films and that I've watched, checking my numbers on the letterboxed, just under 7,000 films in my life. Maybe by the time this episode is up, no, not this episode, <laughs> by the time this week worth of episodes has been completed in a couple of months, it'll be over 7,000, I don't know. But it's no wonder that I've watched all those films and that I've latched onto them and that I've written tens of thousands of words about films in my blog, that I did YouTube reviews, that I do podcasts now with hundreds of episodes behind me about movies. Because what else is there in my brain? Everything goes through that same lens. You get me on a political rant. It's going to probably reference some film or quote some film because that's how I communicate. I'm also undiagnosed sort of autistic where I, that's how I talk. That's how I put things together in my brain during this film. I'm thinking about this plan for tying together an episode of Minutia Ex Machina with a $1 review, an episode of Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute with an episode of Twin Peaks Radio, and an episode of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute with an episode of Trash Film. And tying all these things together into this weird tapestry of thoughts on what I have wanted from my life, what I have in my life, and what I want for my life going forward. Because on some level, I still wish I could make a living doing stuff like this, instead of just talking about films as a hobby. Instead, my day job is still a beach teacher. I still talk about communication, which is also, in a way, still connected because I want to teach other people to express themselves and I express myself as best as I can about the things that I'm interested in because I can't necessarily express myself the way I want to. So I get it in different directions to different extensions of what I want. And then those limits imposed by different mediums or my own inadequacies or lack of opportunities are just, on a good day, just limits to barely think about. On a bad day, they make me feel like a failure. And so I'm watching Tick, Tick, Boom, and then I'm watching the next episode of Wheel of Time when I've written fantasy novels. I've written so many stories where I wanted a complex mythology or created a complex mythology that never got explored adequately because I never wrote enough because I couldn't figure out how to get things published. Just like the YouTube audience or the podcast audience, I couldn't grow the interest enough to keep going. Podcasting I mean, I think the blog fixed it in a way where I was like, 
okay with a small audience. But the more time these things take out of my day, the more I feel like they need to get me something more. Which is why I'm actively aiming for a Patreon thing these days. Putting my $1 reviews up. Putting my trash film reviews up. Putting most episodes of Twin Peaks Radio behind the Patreon wall. Because I would rather do this for a living than what I do. I call myself Professor for a while now when I introduce myself in podcasts. I'd like to think I'm a professor of film. I almost got a job teaching a film class a few years back. Almost. Wish I had. That would have been cool. Instead, I'm reviewing things like this, but that combo, as I was saying, of Tick Tick Boom going into Wheel of Time had me thinking about the things I used to write and how I, I have a tendency to overplan. I'm the kind of thing where if I had a fantasy novel out, it'd be book one of a planned six, and then it would be like uh, Douglas Adams who kept having his book five of his trilogy kind of deal. And then I only get a few books in to a planned series, or a few chapters into a planned book, or a few pages into a planned chapter. Because sometimes, like Andrew Garfield's Jonathan Larson here, you can't write that song that is the most important song to complete the story that you want to tell, until if you're lucky you do. And it works. And people like it. But they don't like it enough. Or maybe there aren't enough of them. Because there's always a question of access. question of opportunity. question of placement. question of luck. So, essentially, this is one of those things that I used to always say. is like, if you want to see this movie, you're going to like it. If you want to see this movie, you're probably going to love it. I did. And if you want to hear more of this thing I'm building this week, look out for three podcasts called Minutia X Machina, The Groundhog Day Project, Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. And it seems you're already following my Patreon. So listen to this week's Twin Peaks Radio. Listen to this week's Trash Film. Because all six of these are tying together. As I sort of think about over the next few days, what I do going forward, what I plan. I have ideas. And that's what really matters. That's the thing. When his uh, girlfriend asks at the end of Tick, Tick, Boom what he does next, the answer is simple. Start writing the next one. The success or lack thereof doesn't matter. It's hard to remove yourself from the impulse to create. Maybe you find other mediums. Maybe you just keep knocking your head against the same wall. But you do keep doing what you do. Cut. The, uh, it's a passport. Stuff that dreams are made of. It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You're still here? You just don't turn it off! It's over. Go home. Go. And here now is the audio from my YouTube scene breakdown from Ex Machina. Apologies for some of the sound quality. This was originally recorded on a cheap lavalier mic, and I didn't even attempt to clean up the audio until years later, once I was podcasting. And I had decided to repost this video on my main YouTube channel, which usually just involves weird mashups of things from different films. Though my most popular videos are just deleted scenes from Groundhog Day, or clips from American Dad. Go figure. I get copyright claims on almost all my videos and thus make no money off of them. 
Yay. Should I be writing this down? Are you watching closely? I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. Hello, everybody, and welcome to After the Film. Today we're going to do something a little more complicated. We're going to take, I guess technically it's about three scenes, uh, from the movie Ex Machina, and we're going to break them down. Look at some details. First, in case you haven't seen the movie... So how does a programmer get to be meeting the CEO? I won a competition. The president can't get Mr. Garrick on the phone. You got the golden ticket. That is Zach Mackinac. Great movie. Great science fiction movie. Deals with issues of free will, gender. It's talking about artificial intelligence and it's good. A little bit of setup. Uh, Caleb, played by Domino Gleason, has just arrived at the weird, uh, isolated house slash laboratory of, uh, Nathan, played by Oscar Isaac. Uh, the house is very cold. There's a lot of glass, a lot of metal. There's little nice intrusions of stonework and natural stuff into the house, but Mostly it's very impersonal. We open this sequence with Caleb. He's been wandering through the house and he comes to find Nathan. And the first one's very simple. Um, it's like there's a lot of dealing in glass separating things in this movie. And it's like we're inside this aquarium. Um, even though the natural world outside looks more like the kind of stuff you'd see in an aquarium, we're inside this unnatural environment. We're with Caleb and we're coming out of it to find Nathan. <laughs> Caleb comes outside. Briefly, you get a reflection in the glass, and this movie deals with reflections as well as it does with glass several times, um, which has to do with identity and duplicitous nature of the way people interact with each other. It's, it's a whole thing. It's complicated. But then we get to the introduction of Nathan. And on the one hand, he's like this hyper-masculine figure. He's out there working out. But on the other hand, in the frame, he's smaller than Caleb. We're still with Caleb. What's important about the masculinity thing, though, is that um, this is deliberate. And I don't mean on the part of the filmmakers, but yes, on the part of the filmmakers. It's also deliberate on the part of Nathan. He knows Caleb's arriving. Caleb arrived by helicopter and is out in the middle of nowhere. Caleb had to go through a, a sequence of getting a security card at the front door. He's had to walk through the house. Nathan knows he's arriving. And at that moment is deliberately out on the deck. Punching a punching bag. Caleb Smith. Hey. Dude! <laughs> I cut that one short on purpose because it's very simple juxtaposition. 
Um, you get a little bit of that reflection thing at the beginning, but what's more important is you have Nathan approaching, still that hyper-masculine figure, undoing the, band, the wraps on his hands, and you don't expect this very, very friendly dude. Um, and that's deliberate on the part of Nathan, deliberate on the part of the filmmakers. They're juxtaposing two different versions of what we should expect. He's this really friendly guy who also is very manipulative. Been so looking forward to this week with you. Come in, come on in. Thanks. You want something to eat or drink after your journey? No, no, thanks. Sure. Fine. Yeah. To be honest, I thought we'd have a breakfast together, but um. More juxtaposition. You have, I mean, on the one hand, visually, you have these two representations of masculinity: the guy that's in a workout gear versus the guy that's in a nice suit, which is a masculine image but a very different kind of masculine image. And then coming to the, I mean, I had an abrupt cutoff there, but that's the point. We have this, Nathan is being very friendly, but he's still keeping Caleb at this distance while reeling him in. I can't really eat anything. I got the mother of all fucking hangovers. Oh, yeah? Oh my God, like you wouldn't even believe when I have a heavy night, I, uh, Compensate the next morning, exercise, antioxidants, you know. Yeah, sure. And there we have more of Nathan as this sort of dual figure. He's not the one that's been reflected on the glass, but he's basically talking about himself as if at night he is a very different person than he is during the day. He's compensating with exercise and healthy consumption to make up for a hangover. And it's about to get awkward. Was it a good party? Party? Yeah, wasn't there a party? There wasn't a party. Sorry. See? Awkward. Um, and this gets to an interesting point about the movie as a whole. And keep in mind, we're only a few minutes into the movie at this point. But there's something wrong with Caleb. And maybe that's why he's there, because he's this awkward, nerdy computer guy. But there might be more to it. Uh, later in the film... Spoilers. Not fair. Later in the film, he actually begins to suspect that he might be also be a robot, an android. And this is important. If you look at this scene, this awkwardness is vital to understanding whether or not that's possible. Whether or not he could be, or whether or not it matters. Um, in writing about this for my blog, found this research, this, this thing, it was a 13-year-old Ukrainian boy named Ernest Gustman. Fake. Doesn't exist. Computer program. Was able to convince several researchers that he was human. And part of it was that by being 13, by not knowing anything, by being Ukrainian and not being good with English, that awkwardness, that disconnect in the communication levels, made it easier for him to be believable as human because awkwardness doesn't fit an android. Or, that's the argument I made, awkwardness is proof that the android is really, really well designed. Caleb doesn't know shit. He doesn't understand social cues. He hears about a hangover and he thinks, I'm supposed to ask why that happened. I'm supposed to make conversation. 
But then again, the way the movie is never answers the question whether or not he's an android. The movie never really asks that question, but Caleb does. Cuts open his own arm in order to see if there's blood inside, if there's muscle inside. The thing is, why does it matter? There's this bit in the movie where Nathan asks about Caleb's type, what he's into. Did you program her to flirt with me? If I did, would that be cheating? Wouldn't it? Caleb, what's your type? Of girl? No, of salad dressing. Yeah, of girl. What's your type of girl? You know what? Don't even answer that. Let's say it's black chicks. Okay? That's your thing. For the sake of argument, that's your thing. Okay? Why is that your thing? Because you did a detailed analysis of all racial types and you cross-referenced that analysis with a points-based system? No! You just attracted the black chicks. A consequence of accumulated external stimuli that you probably didn't even register as they registered with you. Did you program her to like me or not? I programmed her to be heterosexual. Just like you were programmed to be heterosexual. Nobody programmed me to be straight. You decided to be straight? Please, of course you were programmed. By nature or nurture or both. And to be honest, Caleb, you're starting to annoy me now because this is your insecurity talking. This is not your intellect. And he's talking about programming, like, um, societal programming, cultural programming, natural programming. Yes, your type comes from somewhere. It's not something you just picked. Um, Nathan's being flippant when he says you didn't go through all of these, like, types and judge each one of them and measure them against each other. But yes, you did. It just, assuming Caleb's human, took him 26 years to do it. It doesn't mean he didn't do it. And the question that really the movie raises is, what's the difference between the programming put into, like, a one-year-old AI or a 26-year-old man? If they're both programmed over time, if they both can act awkward, if they both can misunderstand communication cues, if they both can betray you, does that mean they're both human? Let's get back to the clips. Caleb, I'm just going to throw this out there so it's said, okay? You're freaked out. I am? Yeah. You're freaked out by the helicopter and the mountains and the house because it's all so super cool. And you're freaked out by me to be meeting me, having this conversation in this room at this moment, right? And there's more of the programming right there in terms of in the story. Uh, that helicopter ride, that going out into the middle of nowhere. On the one hand, yes, you put your lab out in the middle of nowhere so no one can get to it, but also... You fly this guy out there without really telling him all the details of what he's doing because it puts him on edge. It freaks him out. That's what you want. You want to be able to manipulate him into doing what you want, signing, as we'll see in a few moments, your non-disclosure agreement so that he'll work for you, he'll do what you want, and ultimately endanger his own life in doing so. Because that's power. And I get that. I get the moment you're having but dude can we just get past that can we just be two guys nathan and caleb not the whole employer employee can we just be two guys this is nathan countering all of the previous stuff countering the setup to try to force caleb to want to be close and this is all on purpose this is all programming 
whether or not Nathan is doing it consciously. It's just the way he deals with the world. It's a man's world, and he's a computer programmer in a world where he lives alone with robots that he controls. That's just how he views things. Yeah, okay. Yeah? Yeah, sir. Uh, yeah. It's good to meet you, Nathan. It's good to meet you, too, Caleb. Good to meet you. He's trying to put them on equal footing. Pulling Caleb back up. He's keeping him on the, uh, on the line, as it were. Well, I guess the first thing I should do is explain your past. Now, it's simple enough. It opens some doors and it doesn't open others. And that just makes everything easy for you, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, because you're like, oh, fuck, I'm in someone else's house. Can I do this? Can I do that? And this card, it just takes all that worry away. If you try a door and it stays shut, okay, it's off limits. If you try another door and it opens, then it's for you. Two things out of this one. One, the house, you see more of it. It's not a house. It's even more impersonal, more cold. And the interaction with its doors is impersonal. This key card is not like a regular key where you have to interact with the lock. You just kind of put it there. It's all robotic. It's all electronic. But the phrasing there at the end, he's talking about the doors as if they belong to Caleb. He's inviting him in. Really him in. Let's try this one. I guess it's for you, Caleb. You can barely see it there at the end, but there's almost this little moment of excitement as Caleb realizes, hey, this is my room. It's like a a kid when they get when their family moves into a new house and this is going to be your bedroom. He's excited. He's falling for it. Like, there's a, little, a bit of the rest of what Nathan is doing is overkill, because Caleb wants this. You like? Yeah. It's your room. We've got a bed here. A bathroom right back here. A little desk. Cupboards. Little fridge. And here we have a couple things. Um, it's mostly just Nathan listing the amenities of the room. But important visual at the beginning is it echoes the beginning of this sequence we've been covering. That we're going back into the darkness, but they're coming together. Before Caleb was alone going out to meet Nathan, now they're coming back inside. And they're together. Nathan's one. And it's about to get interesting because there's about to be a little bit more of a test of Caleb's programming. Cozy, right? Yeah. This is great. What? Sorry? There's something wrong. What's wrong? There's nothing wrong. It's the windows. You're thinking there's no windows. It's subterranean. It's not cozy. It's claustrophobic. No. No way. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking this is really cool. So there you have it. Think about it. Caleb's an android. How does that sequence happen any differently? If Caleb's human, but awkward, how does that sequence happen any differently? This is very easily a test. It's Nathan saying, you need to recognize that something's unusual. You need to recognize that humans don't like this room. 
But Caleb does recognize it. And when it's pointed out, he refuses. Because he's already accepted it. He's already said that it's okay. So he has to justify it. And this works whether he's an android or a human, because the same thing happens in like societal programming. We learn to accept what we have, or at least claim that we accept it. Because uh, being otherwise would be rude. It'd be more awkward. He's already awkward enough. Caleb, there's a reason there are no windows in this room. There is? Uh-huh. This building isn't a house. It's a research facility. Buried in these walls is enough fiber optic cable to reach the moon and lasso it. A couple great words in there. There's a reason. It's like, this is the purpose for your existence. This is the purpose for why you're here. This moment, this time, this place. And then at the end, that fiber optic cable is going to go lasso the moon. Lasso's a good word. I've been saying he's reeling in Caleb, but here he's also lassoing it. He's grabbing it. He's telling it, this is who you're going to be. And the great thing of this movie is that, again, it works whether or not Caleb is an android or an awkward human. Whether or not he's the one doing the testing or if he's the test subject or both. It still works. And I want to talk to you about what I'm researching. I want to share it with you. In fact, I want to share it with you so much it's eating me up inside. But there's something I need you to do for me first. With different dialogue, this is the seduction. Walks toward him, and he sits down on the bed. This is intimate. This is personal. I want to share. It's a key word. He wants to share. It's not, I want you to work for me. We're in this together. It's a way of, again, programming him. Getting him to do what he wants. We'll skip ahead, skip the text of the non-disclosure agreement, but it is important that Caleb feels the need to read it all. It actually makes him feel a little more robotic, that he has to check the details. What can I tell you, Caleb? You don't have to sign it. You know, we can spend the next few days just shooting pool, getting drunk together, bonding. And when you discover what you've missed out on in about a year, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. So while Caleb was reading the non-disclosure agreement, Nathan's laying on the bed. So more of that intimacy thing. And at the same time, it's more of him claiming ownership of the location. Even when he's just said it's Caleb's room, he's the one laying on the bed. And then he comes over and sits close to him to talk about what's going to happen. You sign this, we work together. You don't, hey, we still get to bond. Yeah, positive, positive. Win-win scenario. So you might as well pick this one. He's pulled him in. And what we have is this hyper-masculine figure manipulating this more diminutive, not necessarily masculine figure. And that ties into all the themes of this movie with the artificial intelligence, the free will, the gender thing, the sexuality societal programming it all comes together in this so you have him this guy manipulating this person or android to do exactly what he wants him to do while making him think that he picked it 
And that's what this movie's about. It's about how society or how we eat each other, how we program each other, how we make each other do things, how we manipulate each other. And often don't even feel manipulated because that's just what happens. If you haven't seen it, go see X-Men. It's awesome. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. That scene breakdown really covered all the way into like minute 10, 11, maybe even the edge of 12. So it's worth saying before I go what actually happens in this minute six of Ex Machina. The music continues, then we're closer on Caleb, framed with windows behind him showing more natural stone outside, pillars holding up part of the building where he entered, higher up, and some blurry greenery beyond that, some of that aquarium setup. Caleb says hello. He sighs. He looks up and behind him, probably intended as looking back up the stairs, but the angle feels slightly wrong. And we get a reverse bird's eye view shot that feels more like the angle of a security camera looking down. And I wonder if that is what the intent was. And they neglected to insert those facial recognition scan artifacts they've been putting in shots earlier. Then as if some off-screen voice has told Caleb, or Donald, to continue, Caleb turns from looking up toward the camera, and he continues toward a staircase that rises out of view to the right. He looks again back toward the bird's eye camera, bumps into one of two chairs placed rather inconveniently close to the staircase, and looks down, straightens the chair, and continues on his way. Caleb, by design of screenwriting, design of societal programming, or design of AI programming, is neat and proper to the point of awkwardness. He glances back over his shoulder one more time again before heading up those stairs and out of the room. And this is where my scene breakdown began. The music cuts off as we transition to mostly darkness, a view of another room, the windows, the exterior beyond, through a narrow doorway. We are 20 seconds into the minute. We hear the sound of a punching bag being hit before we have any visual clue what we are hearing, followed by more hits. And we should figure out what the sound is before the film bothers to show it to us, which is a whole other sort of programming, really. We can interpret one bit of sensory input and extrapolate ahead what we should be seeing. And if we don't then see someone punching a heavy bag, the cognitive dissonance will pull us out of the film. Offering us sound first and then a visual to match draws us in, just as Caleb's curiosity is drawing him in. I mean, surely Nathan knows the helicopter has arrived, knows the computer at the front door has let someone in, but he keeps at his workout because he wants his introduction to go a certain way just as the film wants his introduction to go a certain way. Caleb walks through the opening and the camera moves behind him, changing the angle and widening the opening for us. Caleb is just a silhouette, which makes him even more of a cipher than he has been so far. We are entering this space. We are coming in from the darkness to be enlightened. Reverse, second 25, as Caleb squints and sets down his bag. To the left behind him are bar shelves, glasses, bottles, a few different means to mix drinks. To the right is a reflective surface, which the purpose of it is not clear. I'm actually not sure what it is in this scene, 
and I didn't jump forward to another minute to check. Then we are back to the previous shot, second 29, but the camera has moved through the opening of that doorway, only to reveal a new, wider division of walls to either side, framing a multi-paneled window onto a wooden deck overlooking the river, the forest, and mountains. We still do not see Nathan, and Caleb is again a silhouette. Subtleties here. That may just be coincidence of the existing structures and furnishings. There were two chairs opposite the couch in that previous room. Now we can see two chairs outside on the deck, two cups on a small table to Caleb's left. The space has been prepared for two people. Caleb moves toward the glass. The camera moves forward more slowly. The wall to the left leaves the frame, and just as the wall to the right will also leave frame, Caleb steps through one of the panels, which we might not have even noticed was open, and we get a new angle from outside, from Caleb's right, the direction Nathan is, so he remains unseen as Caleb emerges from the building. The reflections in the glass suggest visually that Caleb is emerging out of the woods, but also into the woods. The division between the modern structure and nature is but lines between panels of glass. Caleb turns toward camera, and toward the sounds we should have identified by now as someone hitting a heavy bag. Caleb is reflected in the glass, which my breakdown covered the use of window frames and reflections in the film. Second 36, we return to the shot from behind Caleb, but the camera has now moved enough to reveal Nathan, off to the right, on a raised portion of the deck, hitting a heavy punching bag hanging from a built-in frame. A small bench and hand weights are nearby. Nathan punches the bag two more times and pauses. Breathing hard, he turns to face Caleb, to face us, and we reverse back to Caleb and his reflection in the glass. But this camera has moved back, offering us some of the river in that direction, this house situated on one of its bends. Caleb smiles, sort of, and shifts from one foot to the other. He is not prepared for this moment. Back to the other angle as Nathan starts to remove the wraps on his hands. While Caleb has arrived wearing a suit, Nathan wears a tank top and shorts, and he is barefoot. But notably, he is framed at this angle as much smaller than Caleb. He is fit. He has just been boxing. He's got the shaved head and beard of someone more stereotypically manly, but he is distant. He takes another breath and steps down from that raised section of deck, starts walking toward Caleb still unraveling the wrap from his right hand, and then finally speaks. And all he says is his name. Caleb Smith. He's identifying him. Reverse, but close on Caleb, no reflection, and the open gap between window panels feels like a gap in the natural world. Caleb smiles a goofy smile. Caleb, hey. Beat. Then back to the two-shot. Nathan is closer to Caleb now, but still feels smaller. He still breathes hard and continues to unwrap his right hand. Then, as I said in my scene breakdown more than five years ago now, he says, rather friendly, Dude! Back to the close angle on Caleb, though his reflection is there again, which is indication that this is clearly a different take with the camera in a slightly different position. He laughs awkwardly. Nathan continues talking off-screen, and as Caleb turns his head, we can infer that Nathan is walking around him on the right. Nathan, I've been so looking forward to this week with you. Sure enough, Nathan passes now behind Caleb and enters the building. Caleb turns with him. Nathan says, come in. And we have a new angle inside this kitchen. 
I made a point in my scene breakdown of noting the cow skull on the wall. Dark so as to be barely noticeable, but still there. Alex Garland is British, but Nathan and Caleb are supposed to be American, and in American cinema, in American household decoration, that is a sign of cowboys, of rugged individualism. And we've got Nathan walking through now with his right hand unwrapped, looking like in another time or another film, he might be a cowboy. Outside on the deck, a pair of lanterns echo the two cups, two bowls, and two plates on the table inside. Nathan says, come on in. Caleb says, thanks. And the minute ends. Thank you for listening. Minutia Ex Machina is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for more Ex Machina, every Wednesday for the Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. Follow this show on Twitter at xmanusha, on Instagram at manusha underscore x underscore machina <laughs> underscore machina, or Facebook at manusha x machina. And really check out the other two shows, and if you get the chance, support me on Patreon for a month. I don't care. Support me for a month and listen to the other stuff. Hear the other pieces of this. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. What imperative does a gray box have to interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? The real test is to show you that she's a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. Thank you.